Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, April 28th, 2021. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be gathering around the virtual water cooler to talk about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writers Twitter and Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hi. All right, well, let's dive right into what we've been doing. Brad, it seems like you've been having some fun recently. Tell me about it. Indeed. Um, so uh, after getting my second shot and then waiting a couple of weeks, I'm fully vaccinated, and so are some friends. And uh, one of my buddies who uh, I pl- I've been playing video games with throughout the pandemic, along with some of our other friends who live nearby, um, we planned uh, a LAN party, basically, um, where we all got together uh, at my friend's house and set up a bunch of TVs and computer monitors with all of our systems and just played uh, a bunch of video games and just screwed around all weekend. Um, everything from Call of Duty to uh, Super Smash Brothers on the Switch, um, some of the uh, Jackbox Party games um, that are really fun to play if you haven't played any of those. Um, and it was just nice. It, it uh, you know, it was a weekend that felt about as normal um as you know it can be as we start to come back you know it really um felt good to get together with people in person again and just hang out and goof around um yeah it was just just generally a good time and it gets me excited just for everything to kind of get back to normal and hopefully you know more gatherings like this will be in the near future so you said LAN party just in case people don't know what that is LAN stands for local area network and as Brad mentioned it's basically when you just like hardwire a bunch of systems together and and play stuff. So Brad, did you have like one particular game that stood out to you that you enjoyed more than the others or were they all, was it more just like the experience than, you know, any specific uh, game? Yeah. I mean, definitely the experience. Uh, I, um, I like the, the Jackbox party games because there's such spontaneity to it because it involves a lot of, you know, just in the moment interaction and uh, you know, coming up with funny answers, um, and it, it makes for a lot of hearty laughs, you know, like we were, you know, there's a lot of times when we were just crying, laughing, um, play, playing these games. So it's, yeah, that's, it, it really is just over, more so about the overall experience. And um, I hadn't done anything like this, you know, not in person, you know, obviously I play video games online, you know, with f- multiple friends occasionally. But like the last time that, you know, we had systems that were all like kind of hooked up together was like when I was in a dorm in my freshman year of college when Halo 2 came out. So <laughs> it was it was just, uh, just cool to get back and do something like this. Oh, yes. I remember those days well. Um, well, today is actually the, the two week mark from when I got my second dose. So I'm like officially whatever uh, immunized, I guess, or whatever the, the term is. Uh, so I, I'm looking forward to inoculated. Like, yeah, inoculated. There you go. Um, I look forward to uh, to like having dinner with my parents inside instead of having to you know eat on porches and, and stuff like that um, at a distance. So uh, that's basically what I've been doing, which is not much of anything. But Jacob, it seems like uh, you've been uh, <laughs> keeping very busy recently. I'm planning a game of Twilight Imperium, which is one of the best board games ever designed. Uh, but it's also a game that typically takes ten to twelve hours to play, especially when you play with eight players, like I have been, and. This weekend marks a point where 
almost everybody in my game group, my gaming group, my regulars are all two weeks past vaccination, the final shots. And we decided this is the time to do it. So I've been planning for a month. We've been orchestrating this and I've, it's been, you know, me sending out, you know, the rule book and tutorials and video stuff online so you can be prepared. It's essentially a space opera war game where everybody plays an alien race and you essentially fight for control of the galaxy. It's not like risk though. And that's just, you know, lots of random dice rolling and simple tactics. It's, the kind of game that also simulates trade and negotiation and politics. And there are a thousand moving pieces on it. And uh, it's the kind of game where you play it and you love and hate everybody in the room with you because it's so much backstabbing, so much alliance making. Uh, it is such a great time. And it's the kind of game that really, for me, symbolizes what tabletop gaming is, which is everybody comes together and you have to be in the same room you meet each other's eyes and you just laugh and scream and yell and argue. And it's the ultimate social experience. And I'm looking forward to being in a room with seven people for 12 hours playing war. I'm, it's been over a year since I've had you know a major board game day like this. And uh, I've spent literally four weeks building up a text message with all my friends, making sure everybody's locked in. And I'll report back next week about how it went. But I'm just excited I'm so excited to be able to actually plan social things again now that, you know, things aren't behind us, but I, but having responsible vaccinated friends <laughs> really means I return to my social life. Yeah. Um, Jacob, I'm curious about your, uh, your board game nights with, with the, you know, you've, you've talked about um, teaming up with this group many, many times on this podcast before uh, and how you've um, sort of been orchestrating a, a long D and D campaign. Is this something where you guys only play like one game per um, per day, per session, per meetup, or is it like, you know, you play Twilight Imperium for a little while, you shift over to D and D campaign for a little while. How does that work? Uh, the D and D thing is D and D campaign is its own thing. It's a whole. Uh, I'm, I've been playing the same game for many years, but it's also um, has some overlap with my game group, but it's very much its own thing. Whereas the board game stuff is, uh, it depends on it depends on the session. It depends on like, who's going to be there. Do we plan to be there for two hours uh, or do we plan to be there for 12 hours? And it becomes a question of, okay, uh, I have a large enough game library of hundreds of, of board games that I can look who's going to be there and say, okay, I know so-and-so likes this type of game, but so-and-so doesn't like this type of game. I can build what I bring based on that. And sometimes we'll make board game days built around one single game where everybody knows this is for me or it's not. Or I bring you know, a whole bunch of 15-minute games. We play a bunch of little things. It's really about reading the room. I think that being a good board game get board game day organizer is about understanding the tastes of your friends and curating a buffet essentially of here here's what i'm bringing what do you want to play and sometimes that means you know one big game or six little games and in the case of this game i cannot imagine anybody wanting to do anything else other than sleep <laughs> after this game <laughs> okay uh well nobody's been reading anything so let's get into what we've been watching jacob and chris have watched mortal kombat chris uh Tell me what you thought about this new movie that's on HBO Max right now. It's bad. It's not a good <laughs> movie. Oh, no. Um, uh, I, I seem to be in the minority on this, although Jacob agrees with me, and you know, I'll let him talk in a moment. But I, you know, I, I have no problem with dumb movies. I'm a sucker for dumb movies. I'm a sucker for movies where monster people punch each other. I'm the target audience for this movie, and I went into it really excited. I thought the trailer looked cool. Uh, but it's just a complete bust. Um, the fights aren't even that impressive, which seems like, you know, the first thing they should have got right. And the second thing that really bugs me is this film does what so many recent, uh, reboots and adaptations of, you know, popular IP do, uh, in that it's all set up. It's, it's not, it's like a prequel movie and Hollywood keeps doing this and they're not stopping. Like, uh, I think like the upcoming Uncharted movie is a prequel movie where it's like, this is how they became whatever. I don't know what Uncharted's about. This is how they became Uncharted. <laughs> but my, it's Uncharted. Like, yeah, but it's it's like, stop it. No one, no one gives a shit about how they became the things they are. Just show us, you know, it's that Patton Oswalt joke where, you know, I don't care how the thing, I forget what the joke is, but he's about the, the Star Wars prequels where it's like, mm -hmm. I don't care where the things I love came from. I just love the things I love. And it's like, I don't need a movie that explains <laughs> where Mortal Kombat comes from. Just give me the Mortal Kombat. Like they don't even get to the tournament, which is like, you know, the, the, 
the thing that a lot of the games is about, you know, the big fighting tournament. This whole movie is all fucking set up. And at the end, it's like, wink, wink. You know what you really wanted? We'll give you that in the sequel. And it's like, well, what if they never make the sequel? Just yeah. get get the first movie right. I know everyone wants franchises and sequels and so on. And that's fine. But please, for the love of God, get the first fucking movie right. <laughs> and then we can talk about sequels. It's just, it's just, uh, it's infuriating. Anyway, Jacob, what did you think? Yeah, this is a very bad movie. And I don't want to make this about people who liked it. Because if you liked it, that's fine. It's just that I feel like so much of the reaction to it was, what did you expect? It's silly. It's dumb. It's Mortal Kombat. To which I respond... I've played a lot of Mortal Kombat games, and especially ones in recent years, have much better stories and simply better character work than this, which is saying a lot considering how these games start off just, you know, a mishmash of things. They've really grown their mythology in their, in their character roster into something that is really silly, but also really fun and uh, maybe not complex, but interesting at least. It's this blend of fantasy, martial arts, and horror that really works. And the Mortal Kombat world has gotten so much fun in addition to being, you know, a fun video game. I felt compelled to write about this. I wrote 2,000 words breaking down why I think Mortal Kombat is a bad movie. And you can find that on SlashFilm.com. But it's it's not that it's just boringly staged and looks cheap and takes place in like three locations. Um, and the fact that they have like, the, the fights really aren't staged well. It's the fact that it really does not understand the appeal of Mortal Kombat. It's, I'm going to get into the weeds here and I apologize. But it's like, one of the big reveals in the movie is that everybody who has to fight for Mortal Kombat is uh, destined to do it. They have a strange birthmark shaped like the Mortal Kombat logo. And if you have that birthmark, you have access to a magical power that you have to unlock through training. And I guess for me, the entire appeal of Mortal Kombat has always been, hey, look, here's an undead ninja and an ice wizard uh, and a military commando and a, and a warrior monk and, and, a, and a movie star who have all come to this fighting tournament for, for their own purposes, their own reasons. They have their own backgrounds. They're all trained in different ways. And they have no reason to be in the same room together whatsoever. Except, yeah, but here they are, all fighting in a mystical tournament that, like, that, that changes the fate of the world. And rather than let that be its own cool thing, these people from different backgrounds, you know, completely different fighting styles. Hey, look, the cyborg is going to fight the, the, the wizard. Isn't that cool? That's very cool. Whereas this movie is content to say, well, they're all the same, really. They all have the same powers. They all come from the same place. Uh, they're all chosen ones by destiny. And, you know, they're, 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 they're fated to be here as opposed to characters who have made their own choices and are here because they're their own people. What a way to reduce that, that, that game's universe. What a way to take everything that's so cool about that cast and, like, homogenize them so they're all the same goddamn thing beyond just being a boringly staged movie that... that that is not interesting and is built around a tournament that they always talk about, but never get to. I mean, what a way to betray the games. What a way to not understand the appeal of these characters. I, I, I hate it. I hate it a lot. Yeah. That, I mean, listening, I have not seen Mortal Kombat yet, but listening to this, it reminds me of like the, um, you know, one of the fatal flaws of the amazing Spider-Man series where it like turns Peter Parker into, you know, this destined figure instead of just, you know, a random guy who happened to get bit by this spider. There's like, you know, all this, like the yeah. one mythology that's, can we, that's can we on. please stop having chosen one movies? I know it's like an ancient <laughs> form of storytelling and so on, but I, I would love for like a year where I don't see a single fucking Hollywood movie where there's at least a chosen one, one chosen one character. It's like, give it, give it a fucking rest. Oh my God. All right. <laughs> all right well, uh, I'm going to link to your piece, uh, Jacob, in the, the show notes here. So if anybody has seen Mortal Kombat and, and is curious about, uh, you know, Jacob's deep dive thoughts on that, um, I encourage you to uh, to check out that link. So One, one question um, real quick. Does anybody yell Mortal Kombat? No. No. Wow. No. Okay. And they even, wow, they, what a waste. They even redo the song, you know, the, the iconic song, and they don't put the guy yelling Mortal Kombat in the song. It's like, like, what are you doing? That's the coolest part. We want to hear the guy yell Mortal Kombat. Ah, there, I hate it. There also, it's, it's, like, it's like a checklist thing, a corporate checklist of here's Mortal Kombat things we can insert there. Like one character kills somebody else and just says fatality, which is funny, which is funny in theory, but it just it feels like a checklist as opposed to like mm. being funny or interesting within the scene or like somebody like a character yells, finish him. Um, but it's not in the context you want to be. It, it, it's, it's, it's in the middle of a chaotic scene. Uh, instead of being like, I don't know. I, I think back to the Paul Thomas Anderson movie 
which use like the like required to say finish him or fatality in, in ways that like feel really fun and natural for a movie that's as silly as that. And I don't think World Combat from 95 is great, but it's better than this one. Or this one just feels like, okay, we have this checklist. Someone's going to uh, someone's gonna say fatality. Someone's going to do this. Someone's going to do that. Scorpion's going to speak in Japanese the entire time, except when he says, get over here, because that's in line. People know. Uh, you know, it's bullshit. I hate it. Ah, oh, boy. Well, that seems like a huge missed opportunity and uh, a, a big bummer. Um, also, Jacob, I think you said Paul Thomas Anderson instead of Paul oh, W.S. Paul W.S. Anderson. Just... Well, you know, I would, I would love to see Paul Thomas Anderson's <laughs> World Combat. Oh, I wonder please. if somebody's done that on YouTube, if somebody's done like a sort of a, a fake uh, in the style of type of fan video. I would love to see something like that. Um, all right. So let's go to what I've been watching. Uh, Jacob, you spent... Um, some time uh, talking about uh, or talking with the director of a new show on Hulu called Sasquatch. And after listening to your interview with that director and uh, hearing you talk about the show, uh, my wife and I watched this series uh, last Saturday. It's three episodes on Hulu right now. And we tore through this entire thing in one afternoon because we were just like, give me more of this. <laughs> like it, it is great. I love it so much. Uh, it is yeah, everything that I love about uh, true tr- uh, true crime sort of mystery storytelling, it is, um, it, man, it, it's it's it has like a. Uh, I hesitate hesitate to go too far into it because Jacob, you've done such a good job talking about it already. But just the very very basic uh, layout of the show is that it's about this journalist who uh, worked on a weed farm in Northern California many many years ago in 1993 and heard this story about a Bigfoot that uh, supposedly murdered three people, um, you know, nearby. And uh, now all these years later, this journalist tries to figure out what the truth is behind that story and and solve that triple homicide. Um, And it is just a fascinating collision of this sort of like weird mythology and, and um, the unsettling nature of uh, being alone in the woods and the, um, the, drug culture, the, the cannabis culture of, of Northern California and why that particular part of the planet is like ideal for growing and the dangers that, um, that can sort of pop up around that and how the government tried to get involved and how these people, you know, some people are just trying to make a living while others are, are more of a, you know, a, a danger to the community around them. I mean, it's, it's all of this kind of like deep dive stuff based on just like whispers and rumors. And this person really just trying to you know, brush all of the nonsense aside and get to the core of the truth of what actually happened here. And it's just um, completely engrossing and totally fascinating. And uh, only three episodes, which is great. I think the entire series runs something like just over two hours. So um, it's it's not a huge uh, commitment, but it is like, this is a, a, you know, we we often on this podcast talk about how true crime shows um, outlive their welcome. They, you know, they stretch out to six or eight episodes when they definitely could have, um, you know, tighten things up a lot. And this is like one of the perfect examples of a show that uh, knows how to get in, get out and tell its story uh, efficiently and effectively. And um, it's, it's very, very good. It's called Sasquatch. It's on Hulu right now. So I would encourage anybody to check that out if they're interested in true crime stuff and, uh, and Bigfoot. (laughs) Um, I also watched California split. Has anybody else here seen this movie? Do you guys know California split at all? Okay, nobody. It's a, shaming us all, Ben. Shaming okay, us all. well, i would never seen it either. Uh, it's directed by Robert Altman. It came out in 1974, and it is a gambling movie starring Elliot Gould and uh, George Segal. Or Segal? Segal? S-E-G-A-L? Hmm. I've seen this person in many things, but I've it's never... It's pronounced Steven Segal. <laughs> You're right. I'm mispronouncing the first name. Uh, man, Elliot Gould and Steven Segal. What a, what a pairing that would be. <laughs> um, but basically, this movie is... Uh, it's a very um, shaggy movie about these two gamblers, these guys who are just addicted to um, playing poker and just gambling on pretty much any game they can get their hands on. Uh, just sort of like bumming around Southern California. They go to Reno at one point, and it's it's a very loose, like I said, sort of shaggy movie. Um, but it is uh, Vulture at one point called it the greatest film about gambling ever made, and it is um, it is a very very good gambling movie it's also a a great sort of buddy movie Uh, these these two guys um gould in particular is just like magnetic in this movie he is uh he is unreal to watch and it's it also serves as um you know in the same way that like uh people say that the rock is sort of a 
sequel, like a, a quasi sequel to the James Bond movies or um, Enemy of the State is sort of a quasi sequel to the conversation. I, I sort of feel like uh, the Ocean's Eleven uh, or the Ocean's Trilogy could be sort of a quasi sequel to California Split because it's Elliot Gould just gambling and being, you know, this, this sort of like a uh, terrible, um, you know, drunken gambler who just loses all of his money at all times and and is like addicted to the the high of uh, of being around the tables. And then you know you could theoretically pick up uh, all those years later with him sort of getting involved with uh, Danny Ocean's crew. So um, if you watch it, you know, w- with through that lens, it sort of adds a, a humorous little uh, extra note to the, to things. But um, I enjoyed this movie a lot. So uh, and reading about the ending the planned ending that they have. I'm not going to give away what actually happens at the end of this movie, but I encourage you, if you do watch this, um, read up a little bit about what the, what they were planning to do with the ending, because it is very different. And I would argue way, way worse than what they actually uh, settled on. So uh, it's called California split. It is streaming on the criterion channel right now. And then I also watched a movie called The Lady Eve, which is also streaming on the criterion channel. This one stars uh, Barbara Stanwyck and uh, Henry Fonda. It was directed by uh, Preston Sergis. Uh, came out in 1941. Has anybody here seen this one? You guys know the Lady Eve at all? This feels like an HT movie. Uh, I <laughs> might have seen this. I don't think I've. No, actually, I haven't. I've heard of it. I don't yeah, think I've it's. Seen it though. It's. Um, I, I wouldn't say it's like a a full blown classic in my eyes, anyway. But man, Barbara Stanwyck is so great in this that it's it's really worth watching for her performance alone. Uh, I'm sort of embarrassed to say that the only other Barbara Stanwyck movie that I've seen is Double Indemnity, which is like one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, just a really, really terrific noir you from 1944. Watch Stella Dallas because she is excellent in that as well. Okay. Yeah. This, you know, seeing her in this, I was like, holy crap, I need to uh, expand my, uh, my horizons in terms of Barbara Stanwyck movies um, because she is like the, the powerhouse at the center of the story. So the, the basic uh, premise of this is um, she and her dad are on an ocean liner and they play a couple of con artists. And Henry Fonda is this uh, scientist who is also the heir to a, uh, a, a brewing company, like a beer factory, basically. And um, he's like super rich. And Stanwyck and her father are trying to swindle Fonda's character out of his uh, out of all of his money. And so she pretends to fall in love with him and then actually does fall for him. And then, uh, you know, sort of chaos ensues from there. So um, it, it's a pretty, uh, you know, simple uh, concept, but I thought the execution was pretty good, except for the ending. It sort of, sort of falls apart a little bit at the end. But man, like I said, Stanwyck is just, um, you know, she she's so um, piercing in uh, Double Indemnity, and it's a completely different type of a different shade of performance. Um, this movie is referred to as a screwball comedy. I would not say that it's in the same category as you know, bringing up baby or, or any of those type of like more classic screwball comedies, but you can see the DNA there a little bit. Um, but she is just, uh, yeah, you can't take your eyes off her and, and she's very, very good. And Henry Fonda is good too. I mean, he's, he's like always, um, solid and this, he's more of a, of a sort of a lunk headed, like, um, gee whiz, aw shucks type of character in this one. So, uh, yeah, the lady Eve it's on criterion channel. If you want to check that out. And then finally, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to the Harley Quinn animated series. I know we've talked about that show on this podcast before. Um, I've heard very, very good things about the show for years, and I've had it in my HBO Max queue for a long time. And I finally just decided to, uh, to, to check that out. And I've watched the first five episodes and love it so far. It's so, so funny. Um, Jacob, I think I remember you saying when you watched it, it was like your favorite DC property since The Dark Knight, if I remember correctly. Yeah, um, it is absolutely my favorite, my favorite uh, piece of DC media since 2008, which I think says a lot. Yeah, and I, I, I'm struggling. I mean, I've only seen the first five episodes, so I don't know if I could go quite that far yet. But it is, uh, it is certainly on that track for me. Um, and it's just so funny. And if you've seen all of the DC movies, you don't even have to be like a huge fan of them. But if you've seen them and have like a basic knowledge of some of these characters, um, this show just works so well. The the decisions that they make the um the the uh sort of um versions of these characters that the uh iterations of these characters like jim gordon commissioner gordon shows up in the first episode and he is just 
haggard as all hell and like completely losing it on the roof of uh, of the Gotham uh, police department. And Batman has to like reel him back in during this interrogation because he's like losing his mind. And you can tell that he just lives in this heightened world at all times. And he's just this normal guy who's like completely gone insane by living in this world where supervillains are running around left and right. And it's just a, a very funny portrayal of Commissioner Gordon. Um, that seems like a little bit more, I mean, as heightened and comedic as it is, it seemed actually a little bit more realistic than some of the, you know, grim, dark uh, versions of that character that we've seen before. So um, great voice work all around. Very, very funny show. Harley Quinn is streaming on HBO Max. Jacob, what have you been watching? Uh, I watched all episodes of Haunted Latin America, the Netflix spinoff of their <laughs> very trashy and incredibly enjoyable uh, show, Haunted. I spoke about the core show on this podcast a long time ago, and it's my absolute guilty pleasure show. I love it to death. It's it's one of two things. It's either people gather in a room with their friends and family and tell the true story of the time they lived in a haunted house or or chased by a demon or had a supernatural experience while really, really well-made, well-shot, atmospheric and creepy reenactments play out as they speak. So it's either that, or it's all completely scripted and everything's completely fake. Um, but either way, I find it so entertaining and so fun to watch and the latin american version is, is what it is it's, it's more episodes uh but but filmed with people from mexico south america central america and it has the exact same production qualities it's the exact same tone exact same pace to it except it has subtitles uh and season three of haunted uh premieres next month and uh, i think this show is so much fun uh it's it's on the verge of being exploitative if it is real oh, these people really are gathering together and, and sharing stories that they believe to be true. Uh, and then their traumatic experiences, whether real or imagined by them are being recreated in like conjuring esque reenactments. I, I can't say it's all in good taste, but I will say I, uh, I think this is one of the absolute best, you know, horror supernatural reenactment shows out there. Uh, Chris, I know you've seen the core show. Have you watched the Latin American version yet? Uh, I watched the first episode and then I, uh, I haven't continued with it, but yeah, I love, I love the original one or the, the main one, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I, yeah, like you, I don't know how legit it is. Like I, I remember in the original, the American one, there's one episode where someone talks about like living in this like house where their father is like constantly killing people and like nothing came of it. And I was like, I don't know how, real this is or not but uh, real or not it's it's a lot of fun and and really stylish and if you like you know if you like haunted house stuff you'll like this yeah uh it's strange because there's episodes like that that feel like they're completely bogus uh either they're completely scripted or the person telling them is an absolute liar but then there are other episodes where one guy shares a story of a demonic encounter while he was at a um essentially held prisoner at a gay conversion um prison more or less he's a real journalist who's told the story in other reputable outlets so it's i don't know what to believe all i know is that haunted is extremely <laughs> entertaining and I, if you like horror and like like your horror with a little bit of trash uh i find haunted to be an absolute blast to watch especially as a you know a maybe you watch a real movie and then you you know it's not quite time to go to bed yet so make yourself a drink and watch an episode of haunted that's kind of been my <laughs> my way with this show and where can you watch it again Jake? oh this is a netflix show Okay. There are two seasons of the American one. The third one arrives uh, mid next month, and there are five episodes of the of Haunted Latin America, uh, which uh, it kind of stuck up on me. I, it, it popped up, and I and I was it's it's, it's really fun. And, and somebody who enjoys you know international horror, you know, here's international reenactment horror, so it has a different flavor <laughs> to it. So it, it is fun. Okay. Uh, I also uh, caught up late. I finally watched Promising Young Woman, a movie I've been putting off watching. I edited enough pieces about Promising Young Woman uh, over the past, you know, four or five months that I feel like I had seen it already. <laughs> so it's one of those cases where throughout our end of the year stuff, I kind of set in the sidelines as it was discussed uh, because I, I hadn't seen it other than, you know, being aware of what happens in it. Uh, I can see why it's riled people up and why people love it or hate it or fall in between. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a movie designed to get you talking and there, there's stuff in here. I love stuff in here. I don't love, but uh, as a conversation starter, I can't think of a movie that feels more prime to get people actively engaging what they just watched than promising young woman. So I, you know, I, I I'll say my, my wife really loved it. Uh, I, I just liked it. So I think maybe there is a, you know, 
I think there's a lot of recognition for one for fifty one percent of the population uh, seeing this movie and getting more out of it. But yeah, I think Promising Woman. If you have if you watch the Oscars and wondering why it won Best Original Screenplay, you know this is your chance. It's five nine nine rental on Amazon, which is where I watched it. Uh, Jacob, you have I mean, like you just laid out, you had a really unique experience of watching this. Whereas, you know, being that you were completely spoiled, and it feels like with the number of pieces that you edited about it you almost knew like every aspect of the movie. So I'm just curious if there was anything about the execution or any plot stuff or any performance stuff or anything that sort of took you by surprise, given how much you knew about the movie uh, going into it. I think that this is the weird part of being an editor sometimes is the pieces that I edited and the conversation I heard made me think it was a far grimmer movie than it was tonally. Uh, And there are really dark moments in it, some bleak moments, but it's often played as extreme dark comedy. And I think, I think Emerald Fennell, the writer director is very aware of this. And she really leans into how absurd uh, Carrie Mulligan's revenge scheme is and treats it as, you know, and <laughs> as one of the most elaborate, uh, implausible, but, you know, emotionally cathartic revenge schemes imaginable. And I think being taken off uh, off guard by the tone, realizing that I think it's asking you to laugh a lot more than I think people realize, mm-hmm. made some of the more implausible and controversial moments uh, ring better for me uh, in a dark comedy context as opposed to a thriller or a drama context. Interesting. Okay. Um, all right, Chris, let's go to you. You've watched one of my most anticipated movies of this entire year. What did you think about the movie that you watched. I'm not even going to say what it was. I'm going to wait for five seconds for okay. you to announce what it is. Uh, I watched the Mitchells versus the machines, which comes to Netflix this Friday. Uh, and this movie is fucking wonderful. Oh man. Um, you know, it's our, the reviews are already out and they're already really ecstatic. And this is one movie where I can, I, I think you can believe the hype. It's just a very funny, sweet, uh, meticulously crafted movie where the script is, is incredibly tight and everything that happens in the movie is setting up something that's going to happen later. And I, I, I love scripts like that. And the animation style is just wonderful. Cause it's like a blend of, of different styles, kind of somewhat similar to uh, into the spider verse, but not quite. Uh, but uh, this is one of those movies where the minute it was over, I was like, I want to watch that again. And we did. Uh, two days later, we, my wife and I rewatched it just because we both liked it so much. And it's just a just a, a really great movie. I, I can't I can't um, praise this movie enough. It's funny. It's charming. It's it's just it's just, it's wonderful. And uh, so I, I really hope everyone checks it out when it comes to Netflix this this weekend, because it's it's probably like one of the best things ever to be associated with Netflix in a, in a very long time. So uh, they, they, I know this was originally going to go to theaters and then Sony sold it to Netflix and uh, their loss is Netflix gain because this, um, this is just fantastic. Chris, have you seen any of Gravity Falls, which is the show that um, Michael Rianda, one of the, the writers and directors worked on before this? No, I have not. Okay. Has anybody here seen Gravity Falls? I feel like that show has been talked about. Um, it has a good reputation. I've just never seen it, and I haven't really talked to anybody who's seen it. But I've, I've seen uh, good things about it. I think on online in, in general. Nobody. Okay. All right. I'm in the same position as you, Chris. Uh, Gravity Falls is up there with Avatar: The Last Airbender, is a show that has been recommended to me more times than I can possibly imagine, and yet. I just have not gotten around to it. So I'll, I'll, I guess I'll add to my list. Maybe we can <laughs> okay. start a podcast where I introduce you guys all to Avatar The Last Airbender. Just kidding. <laughs> all right, uh, Brad, let's go to you. What have you been watching? Uh, so this is something that I actually forgot to mention on last week's Water Cooler. Uh, and it's not indicative of the quality of the movie because I really uh, actually liked it a lot. Um, and that's Nobody with Bob Odenkirk. Um, uh, I fall on the side with, uh, with Jacob that I just really love this movie and – uh, how it fit in with like a, a John Wick style, but it had a different kind of uh, world building to go along with it. I think Odenkirk is great in the role. The action is just as hard hitting uh, as you expect and want it to be. And it's um, <clears throat> it's definitely a little more simple uh, than I anticipated, but I didn't have a problem with that. I just, I really enjoyed how, how breezy uh, and hard hitting, hitting it was and just everything that it brought to the table, including... Uh, you know, Christopher Lloyd um, coming in and having a fun part to play as uh, Bob Odenkirk's character's dad. 
um, yeah, just a, a good action flick and something that I, uh, I watched this on VOD. I didn't go to the theater to see it cause I wasn't, um, past my full, uh, vaccination yet, but, uh, it's something that I, you know, uh, maybe I'll go out of my way to see in theaters just, just to throw some support behind it because it's, it's one of those movies that is worth checking out on the big screen. It would be a fun return if you haven't been back to theaters yet and you're, uh, getting on the verge of being able to, to do that. So yeah, nobody, it's good. Okay. What else, Brad? Uh, I just watched this, uh, special that aired on ABC, um, a day or two ago. Uh, it's called 50 years of sunny days. Um, and it's this hour and a half, um, basically it's, it's like a new special, but it, it plays like a documentary, um, about Sesame street and just, uh, the 50 years that it's been on the air. And, uh, I was worried that this might be something that kind of tread the same territory, um, as uh, street gang, how we got to Sesame street, the documentary that, uh, played Sundance earlier this year. Um, but it, it chronicles Sesame Street in a much different way, um, whereas Street Gang looks at the origins and history of Sesame Street as to how it all came together and the talents behind it and um, the development and creation of certain things and just how it became the the show that it is. Uh, this 50 Years of Sunny Days special actually digs into the impact that Sesame Street has had on families and society and like what their their goal is of trying to help educate kids and have the difficult conversations with them that uh, sometimes parents don't even want to have and can be hard to address in other programming because they're, you know, worried more about ratings and selling toys and uh, lunchboxes and all that stuff. And so um, it, it covers a wide swath of the various things that Sesame Street has done to be uh, progressive and introduce kids and families to, you know, concepts and things that they otherwise might not um, find in, in other shows. Yeah, it ventures to um, to uh, South Africa, where it um, covers the um, version of Sesame Street down there called Takalani Sesame, um, and talks about the the Muppet that was created to address the the AIDS crisis. Um, it talks to various families of different uh, ethnicities and social backgrounds about what certain characters mean to them and how important they are and how it helped them through. Um, through tough times and help their kids, you know, understand things and like feel like they weren't alone. And it just, it's one of the things that goes, you know, just to, to further hit the idea of like, it's very important for people of all uh, walks of life and backgrounds to see themselves represented in media and how important it is to make them feel less alone and know that, you know, they're not uh, forgotten and they're not marginalized, you know, that they're just as important as everybody else is. Um, and of course it's about Sesame street, which, you know, at, pretty much everybody has grown up and experienced it at some point in their life. Uh, and so there's, there's great vintage clips and just uh, fascinating insights about it. And so um, I'm, I'm not aware where, uh, of where it's streaming because it aired on ABC and I recorded it um, through, through the, my DVR on YouTube TV. But since it's ABC, I wouldn't be surprised if it's on Hulu or at the very least streaming um, through the ABC app or something like that. Okay. Um, so yeah, so I, w I would try and seek it out. It's called 50 Years of Sunny Days. Um, and it's, it's very, very good. Man, Sesame Street. What a show, right? Like, has, is there anybody on earth who hates Sesame Street? Like, I can't imagine that. It's, it's Republicans. Such a... I was about to say, yeah, <laughs> try to get canceled several times. Yeah, there's a, oh, there's geez. a, there's actually a segment about how, um, how, like there's certain clips from like Bill O'Reilly show and stuff like that, where they're talking about, it's like, stop trying to take our innocence away from our childhood and have these serious conversations with them. We'll just let, let them have fun. It's like, Give me a break. get fucked. <laughs> Oh, boy. All right. Well, HC, what have you been watching? I have been watching, or really obsessed with, Shadow and Bone, which is the new fantasy series from Netflix developed by Eric Heisserer, the um, uh, writer behind Arrival and Netflix's Bird Box, uh, and based on the Grishaverse novels by Lee Bardugo. And this is a show that I've been has been on my radar for the not on my radar, but I've been kind of aware of it the past couple of weeks because a lot of people I follow are really excited about this adaptation of this YA fantasy series. And um, I kind of rolled my eyes at that because uh, YA fantasy, I, I felt like, has been in a big rut ever since the heyday of The Hunger Games and, Twi and Twilight. Uh, even then, I wasn't really a big fan of those series. I remember reading The Hunger Games books, and while liking the story, I thought the writing was a little bit juvenile. And so I have my own mixed feelings about the YA genre and how a lot of authors kind of lazily reuse the formula in a way that 
I think both underestimates its audience and um, and kind of patronizes them in some ways. So I kind of popped this on sort of on a whim. I heard a lot of good things from people who I trusted. Um, and I also had like an hour to spare like on a Saturday night because probably too much information, but I like late night showers and I was waiting for my hair to dry and I was like, I'll just watch an episode of Shadow and Bone. <laughs> and I end up... This is like 11.45 at night and like half an hour in, I was like, I sat up and was like, oh, oh no, I, I could feel the obsession setting in. Um, and before I knew it, it was like 2 a.m. and I'd watched like two episodes. <laughs> and so this is a series that is set in this fantasy world um, that is vaguely inspired by uh, sort of Tsarist Russia, as well as other countries around that area. Um, there's this country called Ravka, which is the center of it. And there's also bordering nations that are based off of, uh, I think one is like East Asian countries and another is Finland. And um, it's in this fantasy world, there are, this country is divided into by this swath of darkness uh, called the fold, which is, which houses all kinds of uh, ravenous man-eating creatures that attack anyone that, um, tries to cross the fold. And uh, this is, is a huge problem for this country because they are on war from either side and they, whenever they try to cross the other side, they're attacked, beset upon by these creatures. And um, in this country, there are, this is a subset of people who basically use magic called Grisha, who are able to like fight these monsters and they have like various powers, like fire, whatever. And they're led by this general played by Ben Barnes, who is at his swoony best in this series and uh, is basically the epitome of it's evil. Why so sexy? <laughs> so um, at the center of the story is this young orphan who is half, uh, half, half Shuhan, basically half Chinese. Um, and is like steamed an outsider and discovers that, um, she is this mythic sun summoner who has the ability to sun, summon the sun and basically uh, is prophesied to bring down the fold and save the world, blah, blah, chosen one arc. But uh, despite all the familiar elements of YA that this series has, the chosen one arc, the love triangle, the um, a division of people based off of sort of personality traits slash powers, it's... It's really, really, really good. And it handles these elements in a way that feel exciting and new and fresh. It doesn't feel like a lazy trope that they're falling back on. And it's essentially because the world that um, this, ha this show is in is so rich and it kind of just throws you into the deep end. It doesn't really explain to you too much apart from like exposition at the beginning. And I really appreciate that. Um, and the characters are a lot of a lot of fun because not only do we have the central protagonist, there's several other ones that is sort of like this found family unit that immediately has uh, stolen my heart. And um, it's, you know, 99% people pining, 1% kissing, uh, a found family trio centered around a meanful, mean, spiteful man, uh, and a um, lots of maps. I just, I, I don't know. I really love... <laughs> Fan, high fantasy maps I've talked about this before but every time they talk about like the wars to the west and the north I'm like ooh I want to know see a map of this and it's really exciting to me so um I have been obsessed with this show and unfortunately I've been very busy this week so I haven't been able to binge through all eight episodes as, as I would have liked to I've only gotten through episode six so far but I have been just kind of obsessively reading up about it and watching it and just kind of returning even to Tumblr just to sate my my love for this show. I'm really excited about it and I'm I'm kind of amazed that I never caught on to the books, which I'm probably going to be buying now. Um, but yeah, I would say I would recommend this even for people who don't enjoy YA because of just the really fun, really rich characters, the uh, rich world that we have, and the way that it's, it has all these familiar elements but doesn't take itself so seriously doesn't try to be like the next game of thrones like so many fantasy shows are nowadays and it just has fun with it and i that's what i really like about it um so if you really like pining and maps like me in fantasy <laughs> i really recommend shadow and bone streaming now on netflix um so first thing it sounds like the kissing percentage needs to go up a lot one percent hd come on i know there's not, not a lot of kissing i'm six episodes in there's like two <laughs> kiss scenes and i was like wow i'm surprised about this but yeah it's, it's a lot of fun 
And then the other question I have for you, or, or the question I have for you is, I saw that um, Joanna Robinson of Vanity Fair said that like it takes maybe two episodes to really get into this. I'm just curious if that was your experience as well. She, no, she was, seemed to was, think that there was like a barrier of entry a little bit. I was into it pretty soon. Like it was, it was during, it was basically a part that really maybe would only specifically appeal to me. It was when these characters were talking about again geography and like these various sort of criminal syndicates that were happening here that i was like this is almost too complicated i love it and so that really that got me interested i guess so i don't know if that would be something that people would generally would be in but it was um something that sort of caught my attention and i thought this is a show that isn't um either talking down to its audience or trying to be something that it's not Awesome. So that's Shadow and Bone. What else have you been, have you been watching, HD? Um, another thing that I watched on Netflix that uh, came somewhat highly recommended for people that I, I trust and whose taste I usually align with, uh, but I did not like, is Ride or Die, which is a Japanese film uh, directed by um, Ryuchi Hiroki. And it's basically this, uh, this I kind of, uh, well, put this on based on a sort of rave review from David Ehrlich, whose uh, opinions I usually agree with. But um, and like half about an hour into this film, which is like a two and a half hour film, way too long for what it is. I was like, okay, I can see why he likes it. It's about these two murder lesbians who go on the road, Thumb on Louise style, interwoven with this nostalgic slice of life story, coming of age story of when they first met in high school. And I could very much see why he liked it. It's kind of that psychological thriller slash road drama slash uh, coming of age romance. Um, but after that first half hour, which I was intrigued by, I found myself really, really getting disappointed in this movie and starting to fath- starting to find it hard to fathom how he, didn- he could enjoy this movie so much. Um, it's the characters are thin. The plot is meandering in a way that I'm sure is intentional, but felt to me like it was just completely just interminable in a way that I just did not find entertaining to watch uh, with the occasional you know graphic sex scene and the romance at the center of it uh, to call it toxic is generous it's just a, a film that I found myself enjoying less and less as I watched on and also a movie that is very clearly directed by a man there's just some some sex scenes that I found to be not even like gratuitous but just uh, unrealistic in a way that felt like very much like that that sort of um, male director approach to it, and uh, I found myself <laughs> it almost made me lose my estimation of Ehrlich and his taste. I was like, wow, I I uh, I, I kind of not, I'm disappointed in in people who uh, who really like this film, and usually I don't talk about movies that I dislike on this podcast, but this was just one of those instances where I, uh, I found myself really disappointed despite anticipating liking it a lot. And um, so I don't recommend watching Ride or Die on Netflix. All right. Do you have better luck with the other two things? I did have better luck. So Cliff Walker's I got to watch, uh, which is coming out this Friday in theaters. And that is the new film by Zhang Yimou, who is the director behind such wuxia films such as... Um, House of Flying Daggers and Hero, and I. This is his first foray into the spy genre. It's a film set in uh, the puppet state of Manchukuo in nineteen in the nineteen thirties, and it's these four. It follows these four uh, communist special agents who return to China after being trained in um, the USSR and go on a secret mission to rescue um, a. Um, uh, either a war hero or another spy, a fellow agent, um, but they find themselves surrounded by uh, double agents uh, dealing with a traitor in their midst. And it's this real, you know, uh, sturdy, handsomely shot espionage film that um, is good. It's good. It's um not, I wouldn't say it's like, it really blew me away. I liked it more than I loved it, but um, I would say that it's a, uh, it's very yeah handsomely directed film, very, um, confidently directed film, despite you know this being Yimu, uh, Zhang's first um, foray into the spy genre. Uh, but yeah, solid, solid, solid spy movie that um, is really beautiful. It's set in like this sort of very snowy, uh, moody atmosphere, which uh, adds to the entire 
um, paranoid Cold War thriller thing. I guess it's not Cold War since the 1930s, but it has that sort of um, that sort of atmosphere. So that's Cliff Walkers, which is going to hit theaters this Friday. Cool. And then what else? And lastly, I watched Pulse for the first time, the Japanese horror film uh, directed by Kiyoshi Kurosawa. And um, I'd heard a lot of good things about this. This is a movie that I hadn't checked out before because I am a big scaredy cat, especially of ghosts. And the first, yeah, the first hour, first half hour of this is is top tier Japanese techno horror ghost um, film. It's really that creeping dread that is in, that is a, a typical style of a lot of that early 2000s um, Japanese horror. Like Ringu, for example, it had that kind of uh, grungy feel to it too, uh, as well as mostly being about the dread and the suspense versus actual horror. But the imagery is fantastic. And um, the even like, I, I was so fascinated by the ghost scenes in this, in which it forgoes jump scares in favor of something much more slow and chilling and creeping. And there's one scene with this, there's one major scene with a ghost that uh, could have been laughable if it weren't so terrifying it's 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 such a it was a fascinating way to shoot a ghost scene because it's just this woman that was slowly walking up towards a man who was cowering in a corner and doing all these sort of strange loose movements that uh yeah could have looked very silly but just was abjectly terrifying in a way that felt inhuman and eerie and unnatural so uh that was really effective uh latter half was weird and i want to know what Chris thinks about this because I think he wrote about Pulse recently in his uh, streaming column. Uh, is the latter is the ending of Pulse kind of weird? Uh, it, I, I mean, first of all, I love this movie. It's one of my favorite horror movies. Um, it's weird in the sense that it's the movie starts off being one thing and then turns into something completely different. But I, I love all of it. I just love how it's a very like lonely movie. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just it's a very uh, it, it, it felt like the perfect, like, even though it's obviously maybe for that, it feels like the perfect, uh, pandemic era horror movie, just because it's, it's just this very lonely spaced out movie where, where people are, are, are like trapped in their own little worlds. And, um, you know, I do think the second half is a lot different than the first half but i i love i love this movie just so much it's just so creepy and sad and different and uh there's also a remake with Kristen bell and it's terrible so don't watch that (laughs) yeah this is definitely the most effective uh depiction of the horrors of internet and its isolating um qualities that I've ever seen, I think, uh, even more so than more recent sort of sleeker films. I think this one really digs into, like Chris said, the isolation and loneliness of it. So that I really admired, even if I was very confused by the latter half. I, I, I think I'll come around to it. I was just, it was a very different movie, like Chris said. That's pretty impressive considering this movie is, what, 20 years old now? Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, that's, that says a lot. Uh, okay, let's get into what we've been eating. Brad, what have you been eating recently? Um, so before I've talked about um, a bunch of the different um, Cocoa Pebbles and Fruity Pebbles things that have been coming out because it's like the 50th anniversary of both cereals this year. Um, and so in, in honor of that celebration, uh, Post has also come out with Birthday Cake Pebbles, uh, a new cereal that um, is you know flavored like uh, the generic birthday cake flavor. Um, and I think I've talked about before about how I'm generally somewhat leery of the the generic birthday cake flavor because usually it's just very sugary and doesn't necessarily have like much of a defined flavor i guess um and in this case i actually really liked this cereal because it tasted exactly like what i wanted the funfetti cereal to taste like um it actually has like a a funfetti frosting kind of uh flavor to it and funfetti to me like that that's kind of like I think what the general, you know, birthday cake flavor should should be is something along those lines, and um, it, it's it's just just a very good. Um, it's it's definitely a sugary sweet cereal, but um, it's that like that fun fetty style flavoring that really uh, made it stand out to me. So I, I really liked it, and you should be able to find it at a bunch of different uh, grocery stores right now. 
Um, I also tried Skittles gummies, um, the, you know, the, the fruit candy, and they've just turned it into basically just like fruit snacks. And um, it feels kind of like just a, uh, a cheap cash in, um, which obviously they got me, um, be, but because they don't really taste like Skittles, they just taste like vaguely different flavored gummies. They have the regular version um, with all the traditional flavors and they have a wild berry version. Um, and they're good as far as being gummies, you know, they're, um, they're better than, you know, a decent chunk of the, the, the normal like gummy bears or gummy worms and stuff that are out there. Um, but there's really not much, much to them, except that they are, you know, rounded half circles with an S on them that they kind of look like, you know, <laughs> Skittles <laughs> that are have been turned into gummies. So whatever, I guess. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and then, uh, Twizzlers came out with a new mystery flavor. And I, uh, I got a, a packet of that and I actually took it to the land party so that um, everyone there could try it if they wanted to. And from my best guess is it seems like it's just a grape Twizzler. Um, may, maybe more specifically, like maybe it could be a grape jelly Twister. I don't know. Um, Twizzler. Um, but it's uh, the, the Twizzler itself. It, it has what appears to be a, um, a purple color. And the, the flavor does seem like it's like a, um, a, a grape at least a vaguely grape um, flavor. So I feel like it's always tough to tell with licorice because even the like other flavors of licorice that there are out there, like whether it's pull and peel watermelon or um, some of the other like ones that have fillings and stuff like that, the, the flavor in the licorice isn't particularly strong. Um, and it's, that, that was the case with this mystery flavor too. So like, even though it, it did have a grape flavor, it wasn't overwhelming. So um, if it, if it came out that they were grape and they were regular, I'm not necessarily sure I would go out of my way to get them again. Cause they were just fine, but whatever. <laughs> um, and then there are, um, some, uh, Eggo waffles cereals that are out on shelves. There's a, a regular version, there's a blueberry waffles version, and there's a chocolate waffles version. And I was going to ask what the point is of eating cereal that tastes like Eggo waffles, but I guess I could theoretically ask that about almost, you know, 90% of the stuff that you talk about in this category. So I'll just leave it at that. No, for, for sure. And like, um, I got this because it, it, I was hoping that it would be something along the lines of waffle crisp, which, um, hasn't been around for a while, even though I did hear recently that it's, it's back, but only in like the giant Malto meal bags. And I think only like at certain locations, um, and it's not quite as good as Waffle Crisp. It doesn't have quite the same, um, like, crunch to it. And then the the um, maple syrup, you know, waffle flavor isn't uh, quite as prominent. It's It wasn't too dissimilar from Honeycomb. Uh, and that includes the shape of the the cereal as well, but it w- but it was okay. I haven't I didn't get the blueberry one because I'm not really a necessarily a blueberry waffles fan anyway, and so I just didn't feel like that. But I did get the chocolate one, um, and the chocolate waffles one doesn't really taste anything like chocolate uh, waffles, but it's a solid uh, cocoa cereal along the lines of like a a cocoa puffs, um, you know, just in a a different different shape, I guess, and a slightly varying. Um, you know, intensity of, of chocolate flavor. So um, out of all of them, I would say the, the least traditional flavor, the chocolate waffles one was the best one. Uh, but again, not necessarily like one that I'm going to like go out of my way to, to get another box of anytime soon. Okay. All right. I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Film Daily. This podcast is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow. Hey, Ben. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a, you have a choice to make today. Okay. I have in front of me the gargantuan book of insult, offense, and affrontery, sharp retorts, repulse, cost equips, and put down for Louis A. Safian, the old standby, the old classic. Mm-hmm. But I've been doing research and trying to figure out who is the modern heir to the Louis A. Safian throne. So uh, I've found a website news24.com slash you slash archive slash really <laughs> mean insults so my question is do you want me to read from gantry book of insults and refinery or from news24.com slash you slash archive slash really mean insults well you did the work jacob so let's just go ahead and go from the the weird website one all right uh, i 
promise you, this is called "Really Mean Insults" by a uh, uh, by a writer only known as Admin um, Ben. Don't feel bad. There are many people who have no talent. <laughs> oh man, cutting straight to the bone. Uh, Brad, I'd like to kick you in the teeth, but why should I improve your looks? Shit. <laughs> uh, HT, brains aren't everything. In fact, in your case, they're nothing. Ah. Uh, and Chris, uh, I like you. People say I have no taste, but I like you. Oh, I feel like that one wasn't that bad. I, I'll take fine, Okay, that. fine. Any similarity <laughs> between you and a human is purely coincidental. Wow. wow. That's pretty good. Oh, gee. What a 180 that one is. <laughs> so I guess my question, guys, is uh, who do we prefer? Do we prefer Louis A. Safian or Admin? I don't know. Admin. I kind of like that Admin just cuts to the chase. There's no bullshit with with the writer known as Admin. Yeah, he's just raw. He takes the gloves <laughs> off and he just, just really like tells you what a piece of just shit you are. He wants to kick people in the teeth. <laughs> So I guess we're looking at here is the evolution of, of, of insult writing. I mean, Louis Safian is, is very classical. He's very restrained and flowery, whereas Admin is all about, you know, he's an Ernest Hemingway of insult writing. He takes <laughs> away all, all, all the glamour. It's yep. down to the bone. Yeah, perfect the comparison. The next Ernest Hemingway that is Admin. So Louis Safian is to Charles Dickens. This Admin is to Ernest Hemingway. Do you all agree on this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think we have to. Yeah. I think we learned a very valuable lesson here today, ladies and gentlemen.